book of Ephesians, chapter 6. Consider that as Paul wrote these words, he's sitting there in prison. Who is probably the closest to him as he pens this, this book under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit? Roman soldiers. And he decides that he's going to use who's right next to him as an example of the warfare, the spiritual warfare that you and I experience. So he's most likely has Roman soldiers all around him. That would be pretty common. You're in jail and the Romans are ruling over you. And so he takes the armor of the man that he sees and he applies that to the struggle that you and I face in the spiritual, in the unseen. If you are to be strong in the Lord, if I am to be strong in God, if I'm to live a victorious Christian life, then I cannot afford to be without my armor. And so God is equipping me and he's equipping you to know what it's like to live with him and to live for him in a way that's victorious. This armor is for this life. It's for our walk. It's what he has given to us so that we can be strong in him and not keep striving to be strong in ourselves. This is the picture of the soldier and how that pertains to us. First of all, I would like to point out to you that the word of God is telling us to wage warfare in our relationships, not with those that we're in relationships with, but that each one of your relationships is a place where Satan would like to sow discord. We've divided this book simply by the first three chapters being our wealth in Christ, our standing, this truth that we are his adopted sons and daughters. And those first three chapters are so wonderful at describing who we are because of the love of Jesus, because of the grace of God because of the provision of God and the will of God. This is where we stand, not because of our own righteousness, but because of his righteousness. And then we get into the section of the book that starts in chapter 4, verse 1, and goes all the way through chapter 6, verse 9. And what did we label that? We labeled it our walk, another W. This is how to walk with God since he has saved you by his grace. This is how to live in a way that's worthy of your calling. So those two plus chapters spent on your walk. But now this section from verse 10 to the end of the chapter in chapter 6 really is the conclusion of the book. But I don't want you to think that your walk is totally separate from your warfare. No, your warfare is how you walk strong in the Lord. The last few portions of our walk in the spirit or our walk for the Lord, those portions were really specific, weren't they? The scriptures in chapter five talked about marriage. Then they went on to talk about children and their parents. Then the scriptures went on to talk about the employee and how they should respond to their boss. These are ways that we, or these are areas that we are to walk with the Lord in. But aren't those areas also areas of warfare? Aren't our marriages, aren't our families places where the enemy wants to sow division and discord and strife? Now, these parts of our lives, as we back up into chapter 
5 and the beginning of chapter 6, they always have a spiritual source. It's not as though we can live in the context of our families, our marriages, our, our children. It's not like there is zero spiritual foundation. Either there's a twisted foundation or there's a true foundation. When it comes to who we are as workers, there's something spiritual about the way we're working. It's either evil and pleasing to the evil one, or it's righteous and pleasing to the righteous one. I want you to notice this portion is written to those who follow Jesus. Notice the as Christ, notice the in the Lord and to the Lord. If you back up into Ephesians 5.25, where it speaks of marriage, a spiritual unity, it says, husbands, love your wives just also just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her. Do you see the spiritual foundation of marriage? And then teaching our kids is also spiritual, spiritual training, spiritual obedience. If you go to 6.1, children obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. And then your work, your career, your earning, it's also spiritual as to the Lord. Look at chapter 6, second half of verse 7. Service as to the Lord and not to men. When I say wage spiritual warfare in your relationships, the enemy would like nothing more than to drive wedges between husband and wife. The enemy would like nothing more than to put division between parents and children or to start discord between us and those who supervise us in the workplace. Satan throws his darts into our hearts and into our minds, and many times it's about the most precious people in our lives. Because isn't it more simple to be kind to someone that doesn't matter as much? Why is that? Why can't we endeavor to be kind or understanding or patient with those that are closest to us? Well, that's a definitely a battleground, isn't it? our families, our close friendships. Why is this the case? Well, the enemy, Satan, he realizes the potential for good in a marriage where husband and wife are serving the Lord together. He knows how much better off a man is if he has a wife who loves the Lord and vice versa, how much better she is for the kingdom of God and for the glory of God when she has a husband that loves her the way Christ loves the church. Don't you think the enemy understands that? So where does he seek to drive a wedge? Who does he seek to separate? How about in the context of, of parents with our kids? If he can turn us against our kids or our kids against us, hasn't he won a great victory? Hasn't he made something where people can say, look, that was supposed to be good. That was supposed to be of the Lord. But now look, Look, look at how rotten it is. Look at how terrible it is when really the design is good and right as we live it out before the Lord. Or in the workplace, he knows that we can either be a wonderful witness and example for our Savior, or he knows that we can cause people to think that living for Jesus just isn't worth it. Isn't, aren't those some of the hardest areas when it comes to our lives? That's because Satan is right there, seeking to wreak havoc. Don't let him into your marriage. Don't let him into 
the relationship between you and your kids or you and your parents. Don't let him into your attitude towards your boss. If you do, he will wreak havoc. And if Satan has put that errant path before you, send him packing in the name of Jesus. Put on the armor of God. Tell him, get out of my marriage. No more destruction in my family. No more destruction in, in my workplace, in my livelihood, in my work, in my career. And reminding us about this truth that we're waging spiritual warfare in our relationships, still the number one relationship that Satan wants to sour is your relationship with Jesus himself. If he can turn my heart just a little away from my Lord and my King, if he can take your heart and start to get you to question, is God really merciful? Is he really this forgiving? Or is the Almighty some sort of arbitrary, power-hungry tyrant in the sky? He can, if he can sow any form of skepticism into your heart, in your relationship with the Lord, look at what he can gain and what we have to lose. If he can sow the seeds of doubt in regards to what God wants to accomplish through his church and through you, if he can get you to believe that God really doesn't care about the details of your life, but he's got bigger and, and better things to do than that. If he can misrepresent Jesus, don't you think he'll do that? He certainly will. Guard your relationship with God, with the armor that he has given you. Jesus is the author and perfecter of your faith. He started you in faith, he will finish you in faith, and he will be your strength and your shields. Wage that warfare in your relationships. It's important enough. The benefit there is off the charts, mostly with the Lord, but also with each other, because it's God's design that we would help one another and support one another, that we'd pray for each other. And if there's that divide because we've let the darts of the enemy come in that we're reading about, that we're studying about, we have everything to lose. So, so far we've been told to put on the belt of truth in this chapter six, and we've also been told to wear the breastplate of righteousness. And now we get to our next piece of armor in verse 15, chapter six, verse 15. And having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. When I think of being shod, I think of a horse, not of a person, right? You don't think that way? Usually we don't say shod, are your feet shod? We say, do you have your shoes on? Did you, are you wearing your boots? We often think of a Roman soldier as wearing sandals, but their footwear was far more protective and far more functional than that. They wore guards on their shins and over the top of their feet. And they also wore grippers on the soles to give them traction. And without their proper footwear, they were in tons of trouble. So Paul looks down as he's there in prison, no doubt, at those leather foot guards and the traction and says, you know what that's like? That's like the gospel. Why does he say that? 
Let me ask you this. Why did Paul get up and go? Why did Paul move? Because of the gospel, right? When he was going someplace, it was because he had the good news to bring. He had the good news of Jesus Christ to bear. It was his reason for moving. It was his foundation. It was the feet of his ministry. And this is not just the case with Paul, but it is to be the case with you and and I also, isn't it? Jesus said this, listen, from Matthew 28, 19, go therefore. He says to go. Why are we supposed to move? Why are we supposed to be mobilized? Why are we supposed to go? Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. Can't make disciples without giving the gospel, can you? Then he goes on and says, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. So the gospel is the reason that we move, that we go to our neighborhood, to our workplace, to our campus, to another state or to another country. The gospel is our preparation and it's our purpose. For remembering the simplicity of the gospel, I often go to 1 Corinthians chapter 15 because it's stated so clearly and so concisely. We do struggle and we ought to be able to communicate the gospel clearly, but we struggle sometimes thinking, have I left something out? And we want to be able to share the truth of Jesus that set us free. But I go to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, the very first verse sometimes, where it says this, Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel. So Paul is saying in this epistle, I say the gospel to you. I declare the gospel to you. And then if you skip forward to the middle of verse 3, he says this. So it's after it says, I declare to you the gospel, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. What is the gospel? Jesus died for your sins and rose from the grave. That's the gospel. Now you definitely could get into how should I respond since I know that he died for my sins. I should make him my Lord. I should abandon my sin and and follow him. But the good news is that Jesus died for your sins and then rose from the grave. That he is the living God who defeated sin and death on our behalf. So the gospel, meaning good news, is just that. And this is our footing. Is that your footing? When I ask you, are you a victorious Christian? Is your footing, is the rock of your life, the preparation of the gospel of peace? It's our reason for moving. It should be our reason for moving. It should be our motivation Isaiah 52, 7. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who bring good news, who proclaims peace, who brings glad tidings of good things, who proclaims salvation. Did you read this Isaiah 52, maybe some other time, and you thought, why do these people have beautiful feet? Why do they have lovely feet? Traveling feet are sweaty and stinky, And if they're like mine, they're full of fungus on top of it, right? You don't think of beautiful feet, the traveler on the hillside. Why? Because they're shod with the gospel. They're bringing the good news that Jesus died for our sins and rose from the grave. What used to be gross is now covered in what is good. And so point number two, make the gospel your reason to go. That's what the words is saying to us here. Your reason to move, your reason 
to be motivated, your, your reason to say, the Lord saved me, and he desires for me to make disciples. He said, come follow me. And he's beckoning others to come and follow him. Make the gospel your reason to move. Make it your mission. Now, it has often been said when we look at the whole armor of God, I've listened to a lot of messages and read a lot of commentaries and looked at a lot of original language. Many people have said this about the armor. Have you noticed that they're mostly defensive and not offensive? In fact, I read multiple commentators last week that said they're all defense except for the sword. And then I started thinking of all the Greek and Roman battles that I've read about where they literally took their shields and marched forward, knocked their enemies over, and trampled them, and then stabbed them. Maybe I'm just too into ancient warfare, but quite often, that was the mode out in the battlefield where lines were marching against each other. It wasn't a lot like the movies where you just see everybody's fighting all their little individual fencing fights over here. This guy's fighting that guy. Look for each other. No, they would just press forward with their shields. They would march and then just crush the enemy, literally trample them at times, and then use their spear or their sword to kill them. And then I thought, am I just taking this too far? Is this supposed to be offensive also? The gospel? Is it supposed to not just be something that we protect ourselves with, but is it supposed to be offensive? And not offensive in the way that it hurts. We know the gospel is a rock of offense, but is the gospel supposed to be offensive? This came to my mind, Romans 16, 19. But I want you to be wise in what is good and simple concerning evil. And the God of peace, peace will crush Satan under your feet. The gospel is our offense. It's protection, for sure. But the devil trampled as we wear the gospel on our feet. That is a victorious Christian life. The devil defeated. So point number three, trample Satan with the gospel. Or the defeated Christian life does just the opposite. If you want to go back just a couple of chapters to Ephesians chapter 4, verse 26, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your wrath, nor give place to the devil. You see, we can give the devil some real estate in our lives. We can give him some, some territory. We can give him a foothold. How does that happen? Well, according to Ephesians chapter 4, it's when we're angry in our own anger. It's when we have our own wrath. It's when we have our own animosity, our own strife. And we express that. Not the be angry and sin not, but the anger of our flesh. That gives the devil a foothold. Conversely, wearing the gospel, letting it be who we are, move us, that is defeating to Satan. That's what it takes, that's what it means to trample Satan under your feet. And he is trampled under the feet of Christ. But I look at Romans 16, and the kids have sang this song, 16, 19, and 20, for a long time, and they stomp their feet in happiness, thinking, we'll soon crush Satan under your feet. That happens only when we have our armor on. Do you see that it's the preparation of the gospel of peace? How is the gospel peace? Because isn't it true that 
the unbelieving world, so many of them have an agenda to portray the gospel as something that breeds animosity. Christianity as something that is destructive. When the word of God says that the gospel is peace, I think of Romans chapter 5, the very beginning of that chapter, it says this, therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So because you are in right standing with Jesus, because he has saved you by his grace, that's what it means to be justified, and you've had your sins washed clean, you have peace with God. The gospel results in peace between us and God. The gospel is this news about Jesus bridging the gap between sin and God Almighty. The gospel is also inner peace for us because we're no longer in bondage to sin. We're no longer under the judgment of sin. And it's not just knowing what's right and what's wrong. It's having God accomplish it through us, that righteousness through us. The gospel builds the bridge between us and God, and Satan would like to burn that bridge. Lies are lies. There are times when we might be tricked or fooled into thinking that a lie is the truth, but it is still a lie. Truth is truth. And there, be there might be times when we think, oh, maybe that truth really isn't true at all. Our flesh separates us from God. We start to listen to the temptations of Satan. But in reality, God is holy. He is perfectly pure. So he cannot accept sin. He gave his only son to pay the pardon for sin. And now he can accept me. And he can accept you if we will believe in Jesus as Lord. So God didn't change the requirements. It's not like he said, oh, I'll accept some sin, a little bit of sin. I'll accept sins that are considered to be more acceptable or more common. No, he didn't change the rules. He fulfilled the rules. He didn't change the requirements. He fulfilled the requirements by giving his only son. The gospel is peace. So trample Satan with the gospel. Let your feet be shod with the preparation of this gospel of peace. Point number four, expect intense warfare as God's instruments. Have you read some of the, the writings of Martin Luther? Some of them are, are pretty scary. In one instance, he wrote about how he was sleeping. He sensed something, sensed someone, and he, he turned towards it, and he, and he saw Satan right there next to his bed. Now, I hear a lot of weird stories. Maybe it's just the nature of my job. And most of the time, I just say, wow, that sounds really normal, but you think it's special. But Martin Luther, right, the great reformer who God used to, you know, I'm not going to say, oh, yeah, Martin, yeah, right, you had something bad to eat and that caused you. No, 
So he sees the devil there who wants to pull him aside, and he just says, oh, it's just you. That's what he said. Oh, it's just you, and he rolled over and went back to sleep again. <laughs> That's a lot of peace. Oh, I thought it was somebody else. It's just you. And I think about Jesus himself being tempted by Satan, the almighty God in the flesh. And of course, Satan's going to focus on Jesus. He wants to try to keep Jesus from the mission of the cross. And all of his temptation illustrates that to us. But then we might start to think, well, maybe for Jesus, because he's God in the flesh, Satan has time for that. He's got resources for that. He's going to put it into Jesus. Or maybe for a man like Martin Luther, who was being so mightily used by the Lord, that, that God would, would need to really protect him from a lot of evil attacks. But the truth is, is that we should expect intense warfare if we are instruments of God. Now, I do admit, why should Satan waste his darts on a person who isn't doing much? He's a tactician, isn't he? If somebody is lazy, if somebody is indolent, and, and they're not living a life that's glorifying to God, they're not working, they're not serving, does Satan need to spend a whole bunch of time and resources when it comes to principalities and powers and rulers? He doesn't, right? Because the person is self-destructive. So he pays them little mind. But listen to what Jesus says to his disciples. Because if you seek to be an instrument for God's glory, if he's called you and anointed you, and if he's using you, there is a target on your life. The devil doesn't want you to move forward. Listen to what Jesus said to his apostles. This is in Luke 22. It's verse 31 and 32. And in first he's speaking to Peter. He says, Simon, Simon, indeed, Satan has asked for you that he may sift you as wheat. And that second use of the word you right there is plural. So translated, it could say this. Indeed, Satan has asked for you, Peter, that he may sift you all as wheat, speaking to the apostles. The devil wants to destroy your ministry. He wants to destroy your love for me. He wants to hijack your service for the kingdom. Satan sees what's coming to some extent, and he realizes these are the, those that are walking with Jesus. These are those that are close to Jesus. These are those that have left the tax collector booth and the fishing boats, and they've come to follow after him. These are his instruments to be used for his glory. These are his followers. I want to I sift them as wheat. Jesus goes on to say, but I have prayed for you that your faith should not fail. And when you have returned to me, strengthen your brethren. Jesus says, you're my instruments. And Satan is asking for you because he just wants to scatter you and he wants to make you useless. He wants to wound you so there's not profit coming for your life, that there's not pleasing living coming from your life towards God. Listen to what Paul said regarding how Satan targeted him in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 7. A thorn in the flesh was given to me a messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I be exalted above measure. Concerning 
this thing, I pleaded with the Lord three times that it might depart from me. And he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. The apostle Paul saying, I have a messenger from Satan buffeting me. Now, thorn in the flesh is the context of there's something that's physically hurting me, but was it just physical? No, the thorn in the flesh wasn't just physical. It was spiritual. Even a messenger of Satan. Satan saying, Mr. Demon, I don't want, it's like one-on-one with you and Paul. You know how when somebody's really good, you maybe even stick two players on him. Like, you can't let this, look, buffet him. And in the midst of that buffeting from Satan, God reminded Paul that in his weakness, God's strength was made perfect. That when you're weak and when you're dependent and when you're hurting and when you're buffeted back and forth, that's when my power shines through you. So if you have been called to be an instrument for the Lord, if you're not one of those who who are being indolent, there is a target on your life. Satan would like nothing more than to keep you from being an instrument of God. Verse 16. Above all, taking the shield of faith with which you will be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one. The shield of faith quenches all darts. Isn't that what you read? Isn't that what you see? Hopefully in the next session we'll learn more about the shield of faith. But I noticed what it says here. First of all, it says above all. That means this piece of armor is extremely important. And then there's another all in the verse. And it says we'll be able to quench all the fiery darts as we have faith in the Lord. So number four was expect intense warfare as instruments of God. The final point, quench all darts with faith. This means that there's not a dart that gets by when our faith is in God. Let's admit it. Sometimes we put our faith in ourselves. And then a dart can seem to have so much power, like the power of an atomic bomb instead of just a burning dart. But it will be quenched through faith in Jesus. Either we have faith that nothing is impossible for him, or we think that there are things that God just probably won't do or care to do or or can do. It's one or the other. Either we think and we believe and we trust that God will do anything on our behalf to keep us from the fiery darts, to keep us from temptation, to keep us from stumbling, to keep us from getting caught on fire. I think of the closing verse in the book of Jude, now unto him who is able to keep us from falling. He's able to keep us from stumbling and to present us faultless before the throne of God with singing. Here is Jesus singing over us, keeping us from stumbling practically into sin and then presenting us perfect before the Father because of his shed blood for us. When I look at the shield of faith and that you and I are supposed to put that forward and that when we are walking in faith, those darts are quenched. Not just the manageable darts 
not just the darts that we expect. Because let's admit it, there are some temptation, there are some darts, and we just grow to kind of expect them. I'm that way. I, I think you are too. You're like, well, I'm expecting Satan to hit me right here. It's kind of the, his mode of operation. I'm not dumb to him. But how about when you're blindsided? How about when you're not ready? The shield of faith. God, I trust you for this. I, I don't trust in myself. It quenches that fiery dart from the devil. His strength is made perfect in your weakness. This is Psalm chapter 3, and I'd like you to turn there. Psalm chapter 3, verse 2. King David writes in the psalm, and at first he talks about what other people are saying about him, because let's admit it, that, that gets to us sometimes. And we start listening to the voices of other people and what they're saying and that that's really the reality of, of who we are or what our future holds. And he's just before God, and he's in this terrible situation of strife in the context of his family, this son, Absalom. Psalm chapter 3, verse 2 says, Many are they who say of me, there is no help for him in God. All these people are saying about David, he, God, even God can't help this guy. That's how bad off he is. And then David, the musician, you see Selah there in that verse. There's this long pause, and he's just contemplating before the Lord, pouring out his, his musicianship and creativity before the Lord. And I won't get into a debate with, you, debate with you about Selah, but I just think it's a great piano interlude where you just play the piano, and, and you just let your tongue be quiet, Right? And of course, it was a harp, but not a full piano, but it's that break, it's that rest. This is what people are saying, is that God won't give help, that God can't give help. There's no help for him in God. Verse three, but you, O Lord, are a shield for me, my glory, and the one who lifts up my head. His head isn't lifted up because people start saying good things about him. His head isn't lifted up because people say, oh, now there's hope for him. Now maybe God can help him. His head is lifted up because the Lord is his shield. The Lord is his defender. He's taken refuge in God, the shield of faith, the one who lifts up his head. This evening, as we've learned about the gospel of peace, who is our peace? Jesus is our peace who has broken down every wall. Who is your shield? Who is your defender? It's Jesus himself. I will remind you again and again, when you put on the armor, you're putting on Christ. You're putting on Jesus. You're putting off the things of the flesh. You're putting off the darts of the enemy, and you're putting on Christ himself. You're wearing his righteousness right here protecting your heart. Right? You're wearing his belt of truth around you. It's holding everything together. Here you are with that peace on your feet, the peace that crushes the enemy who desires to cause divide. And he is your shield. You can't defend yourself. I can't defend myself. But Jesus 
being the one who every time is our high tower when we run in to him. Our Lord Jesus, we choose tonight to put you on that much more. We choose this day to put off the temptation, to put off the flesh, and to put on everything that is you, Lord Jesus. I need you to build my faith, Lord. I ask you for more faith. I know that you can't be pleased unless we have faith. It's impossible to please you without it, Lord God. But I ask for more so that I'll see that you are the one who quenches all of the enemy's darts. He is indeed a formidable enemy to us. But in you, Lord Jesus, the victory is there every single time. I pray for the victorious life to your glory. I pray that you would take the things that are meant for evil and use them for good. I pray that you, Lord, would work in a way that's beyond what we can comprehend. Because truthfully, we can't see how you could ever block every single dart. But you can, Lord, and you will if we stand in faith. Help us to have that faith, or the faith that we've seen in others, the faith that we see in the apostles, the faith that we've seen from so many people trusting you through circumstances that are massive and destructive and truthfully terrible. Lord, as we worship you with these songs, I pray that you would open our hearts to pray to you that we would be singing, but not just singing, Lord, that we would seek you. In Jesus' name we pray.